uh, your singing. And parents, let me just make a plug to you. If you don't have your children connected to one of our children's choirs, you're missing an incredible opportunity to have their hearts formed uh, toward and shaped toward Christ. So thank you, Randy and Kendra, for leading so well our children's choir here at Woodlawn. Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, as we reflect together today on Christ's reign over humanity through His incarnation. Christ's reign over humanity through His incarnation. Revelation chapter 12 is uniquely situated right in between the last reference to these seven bowls and right before, uh, or excuse me, to the trumpets and right before the reference to the seven bowls, you have this interlude. And in some ways what John is doing here in 12 and 13 for sure is giving for us an explanation. He's setting the stage. He's setting the theological understanding for his church of what is about to take place. Why all of the chaos? Why all of the hostility? And perhaps we shouldn't be surprised at the hostility that is indeed to come, for Jesus himself had already warned of something similar in John chapter 15. Listen at John chapter 15, verse 20. Jesus said these words, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And what's going to take place as Revelation continues to unfold is this climactic battle between heaven and earth in which the people of God are caught right in the center. And some of us understand that to be this period of a great tribulation, if you will, a period of intense persecution for the church. So what John is doing for us in, John, in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, in some ways, is laying for us the theological foundation, understanding of what is going to be taking place in terms of the church's persecution. And John begins this conversation here in chapter 12 with uh, some images for us. And in these images, he gives to us this image of a woman and this image of a dragon. But throughout 12 and 13, Perhaps a greater image is being given to us for this theological understanding, the unholy trinity, if you will. For it will be the unholy trinity who unleashes the powers of hell against the people of God. That unholy trinity being the dragon, the beast, and the unfaithful witness at the end of this narrative here in John chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and into 17. But here in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, John shows us, John reveals for us, John reminds us as we think about the narrative as it unfolds and its intensity, God is still ruling and reigning. And friends, we can take hope in the middle of great adversity. Why? Because Jesus, through his incarnation, rules over humanity. Jesus is ruling and reigning at this very moment, despite all of the chaos that we see and experience. And John says to us, that rule begins with the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, an incarnation that we celebrate at this time of Christmas. Look at the text of scripture with me. John chapter, excuse me, Revelation chapter 12, verses one through six. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, 
and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was called up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Here in this narrative, we have three scenes that unfold for us. The first scene is seen in verses 1 through 2, where we have this revelation of this first person, this first sign that is to appear. Notice what the text says, a great sign has appeared in heaven. This is a sign, if you will, for all the world to see what God is doing in the giving of his son Jesus Christ is not a secret. It is not something that is to be concealed. It is something that is to be revealed, a sign that is to be revealed to all people. The heavens, John says, declare the greatness of what is to take place in this narrative. The first scene is of a woman. A woman clothed with sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars, perhaps a reference back all the way to Genesis chapter 37 as we see this great declaration of God identifying for us his people. Jacob would be the head of the nation of Israel and flowing from him would be these other 11 tribes and the moon would be his, his wife, a depiction of of the greatness that God has set upon his people, the affection that God has for his covenant people, the people of Israel. In fact, this woman is indeed the nation of Israel herself, through whom Messiah would indeed be born. Verse 2, she was pregnant and was crying out with birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. Over the course of the last several weeks, we've been reflecting together on Messiah. And we looked first together from 2 Samuel chapter 7 at this promise to David that God has given to David that upon his throne will reign forever this Davidic king. And we saw from 2 Samuel chapter 7 culminating with the New Testament that God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 was ultimately fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is this fulfillment. But in between this period of God's promise to David and the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise through his Messiah Jesus is this incredible history of great ups and downs. The nation of Israel, at times in right relationship with God, in full celebration, receiving all the benefits of walking faithfully with God, and yet, perhaps mostly at other times, the narrative was completely other than that. It's exactly what John is reflecting upon here in in Revelation chapter 12, verse 2, there is this woman, she is pregnant, there's this, this promise that has been given to this nation that through this nation, this nation would utter in this Davidic king, this Messiah who would rule and reign, yet as the people of God are waiting in anticipation with Israel being pregnant to birth forward this Messiah, there are indeed intense birth pains. 
Look with me back in your Old Testament to the book of Micah. Look with me to the Old Testament prophet Micah. And let's, let's look at what Micah has to say in chapter four as we think about God's promise to the Old Testament people of God that he would indeed bring forth through the nation of Israel this one who would rule and reign as this victorious king. Look with me in Micah chapter four. Micah chapter four. Let's start reading in verse six. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Look at verse 9. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king for you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Micah is reflecting in this prophetic vision what has taken place throughout Israel's history as Israel, due to sin, found herself from time to time enslaved, whether that to Assyria or to Babylon, and in those moments of enslavement, great persecution ensued, so much so that Micah is saying, that pain seized you like a woman in labor. Verse 10, writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go down to Babylon. Here's the prophetic word that they would be enslaved to Babylon. There you shall be rescued, for the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And what does that redemption look like for the nation of Israel? Micah not only defines for us this intense period that is defined as a woman given birth, but Micah also defines for us this deliverance that is given to us through the Messiah. Look with me in Micah chapter five, verses two and three. But you, O Bethlehem Epaphrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of, from of old, from ancient days, a fulfillment of this prophecy, a recommunication of this prophetic utterance that was given in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she, notice this imagery again, when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Israel, in this period of waiting, longed for this Messiah who would ultimately provide, provide the redemption that she so desperately needed. And John, as he reflects upon this period of, of time, uses this same imagery from the Old Testament to, to speak to us about this one who is coming, the Messiah. The nation of Israel was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So the first sign that we see is of this nation Israel defined as this glorious woman, one who God has set his affection upon, yet due to her own sin, finds herself in this intense period of agony, of waiting for this Messiah. And notice verses three and four, this next sign that appears. It's the dragon who wants to destroy the Messiah. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. Now who is this dragon? John is actually going to answer that question for us in the context of Revelation chapter 12, 
look forward just a little bit to Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, and hear him define this dragon for us. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So we have identified for us and this unholy trinity, uh, the, first, the, first, the first person of that trinity, Satan himself, the dragon. He's depicted as a red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour this child. So the setting has been made for us. Two signs. A woman who is in intense labor and pain, ready to give birth to a child. A dragon, Satan himself, who now appears right next to this woman as he waits in anticipation for the delivery of this child. Notice the designation of this dragon. Perhaps it is that he is seen as one who is a great red dragon, red being the color of blood, for we know that Satan himself is a murderer. So perhaps uh, John is depicting for us this murdering dragon who has these seven heads and ten horns and, and on his head seven diadems. Now friends, you can go to a local theological library and half of that library will be filled with speculation in terms of what in the world it means that this dragon had seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. People have been trying to understand since John wrote this book in the 90s exactly what all of this imagery is suggesting or exactly what this, image, image, this imagery is. I think clearly what this imagery is suggesting for us in this climactic battle that this dragon himself appears to be one who is set in competition to God himself. For in the book of Revelation, the number seven does indeed have significance. It is a number of God himself, a number of complete perfection. So notice what John is doing for us. There is this other one. There is this dragon. There is this Satan. And what does Satan think about himself? Does Satan suppose himself to be under submission to this great and glorious God? Or does Satan see himself to be equal to this great and glorious God? Well, John is saying for us in this depiction of Satan that Satan images himself in this same array of, of God with this same power, this same, perfect, this same perfection, if you will. So Satan has set himself up as one who is like a God or God himself. And notice now what John does for us in verse 4. In verse 4, he's going to speak to us in a general way in terms of what this dragon has done, and then with some specificity in the last two sections of verse 4, he's going to give us some specificity of how this dragon has responded. Notice what verse 4 says. His, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Now I'll give somebody a brand new, beautiful $100 bill if you can with full assurance and authority, with certainty, tell everyone in this auditorium this morning exactly what this is in reference to. I'm waiting. Well, Miss Jean said one-third of his angels. We know from a depiction in Isaiah, for example, Isaiah gives us a depiction of what takes place at some point in, in history past, and how we come to understand that there is a Satan and there are these fallen angels. We know from Isaiah that there was some type of 
battle that ensued in the heavens where Satan himself thought, supposed himself to be equal to God and he was cast down out of heaven and Isaiah says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Perhaps what John is doing for us here in chapter 12 verse 4 is taking us all the way back to that period of time, perhaps a period of time before God even created humanity. Perhaps he's taking us all the way back to that period of time. And if you were to continue to read in Revelation chapter 12 and verses 7 through verse 12, it might seem that Revelation 12, 7 through 12 is indeed given us some indication that that is exactly what John is doing for us here in Revelation chapter 12. But the language that John uses here in Revelation 12 verse 4 is very similar to the language that he's used in Daniel chapter 8. And go with me to Daniel chapter 8 just for a moment. Daniel chapter 8. Daniel is depicting for us what most scholars believed to be a future event known as the Medo-Persian Empire and the fall of that empire that occurred about 160, 170 years before Jesus Christ would appear on the scene. And listen what Daniel had to say about this, about this empire. Let's begin reading in verse 8, chapter 8, verse 8. For he tells us that there is this one who is a goat, Now, um, I've come to understand that goat can mean the greatest of all. Well, there was this one who thought he was the greatest of all times, Alexander the the Great. He was the first goat, in fact, if you will. And there's biblical uh, precedent for understanding Alexander the Great to be the first goat. Verse 8, then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled them. You hear the language that is similar now to Revelation chapter 12, verse 4. Might it be that what John himself is picking up on is this reference back to, back to uh, Daniel chapter 8 and seeing and uh, Antiochus Epiphanes come to power and we know that he was ruthless and he was brutal in his reign against the people of God and perhaps what John is further depicting for us in Revelation chapter 12 verse 4 is a image of what is yet to come in the book of Revelation as he defines for us the intensity of the persecution of the people of God. So perhaps Revelation chapter 12 verse 4 is a depiction of what happened in history past long ago between God and Satan when Satan was thrown out of heaven and being thrown out of heaven left with a number of his angels or perhaps It's a reference back to this battle that would take place between Antiochus Epiphanes and his ruthless reign against the people of God. Nevertheless, the imagery has been cast for us of just how evil and wicked this dragon truly is. But don't miss that John is not only speaking of how evil and wicked he is, also notice how powerful the dragon is. With his tail, the Bible says, he is able to drag down a third of the stars of heaven. John depicts for us in real ways, 
just how powerful Satan truly is. He is like a lion roaming around seeking whom he may devour. And friends, the truth of the matter is Satan is powerful enough to devour, to consume, to destroy humanity. And there's only one way John tells us that we're able to defeat Satan. We are only able to defeat Satan by the blood of the Lamb. Friends, it reminds us in this narrative this morning that what God has done for us in the incarnation of Christ is directing our attention and our focus to the crucifixion of Christ. For it's in the crucifixion of Christ that Jesus himself has secured the ability for you and me to reign victorious over Satan. And there's only one way for you this morning to gain victory over this dragon. And it's by faith and hope and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Have you trusted in Christ this morning, friend? Have you given your life to Christ? Or are you still being devoured by this powerful Satan who seeks to keep you and me for forever being united with the Lord Jesus Christ? So powerful that she stands, the Bible says here in depiction, right by this woman who is to give birth, waiting to devour his son. You might now remember coming forward to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 2. What does Herod do when he hears of the birth of Jesus? He sets a decree, does he not? A decree to do what? Kill every boy two years and younger. By the way, this is the narrative of how Satan works in Revelation 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. He is always working through earthly powers to thwart the power of God. He works through Herod to seek to devour this son. But notice the next scene here in verses 5 and 6. The birth of the Messiah. Jesus, through his incarnation, reigns, rules over humanity. And she gave birth to a male child. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was called up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Satan thought he had the upper hand in his battle against God, but Satan has forgotten that God has prophetically spoken through his word in terms of what the end will really be like. We see the very image of this battle all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The seed of the woman in battle against the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent would strike the hill of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. What was Moses depicting for us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? This very image that we celebrate here in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. See, friends, Revelation chapter 12, verse 5 does indeed celebrate Christ's incarnation. But as I noted a few moments ago, Christ's incarnation, its intended purpose is to focus my attention and your attention toward Calvary. For it's at the cross where Jesus ultimately gains victory over Satan. Satan thought Jesus on the cross was a victory for him. But the narrative does not conclude with Jesus on the cross. 
The narrative does not conclude with Jesus in a tomb. The narrative concludes with Jesus' glorious and powerful resurrection and ascension back to the right hand of the Father, to the very throne of God. And this is what John wants you and me to see, friends. Yes, we celebrate this Christmas season God's most incredible gift of a baby in a manger through the person of Jesus. But Jesus does not stay a baby in a manger. Jesus becomes a ruling, conquering king who is at this very moment ruling over my life and your life. Notice this text of Scripture. She gives birth to a male child. For time this morning, I won't direct your attention there. Perhaps you can spend some time this week reflecting. Go back to Isaiah chapter 66. And there in Isaiah chapter 66 is this prophetic utterance of what God will do uh, for the nation of Israel as he remakes them, if you will, and promises to them that this Messiah would come. And there in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7, he promises to them that there would be a birth of a male child. This male child who is going to do what? He is going to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Pastor Laramie referenced earlier this morning Psalm 2. And here in Psalm 2, in this kingly psalm, we see this depiction of this Messiah who would indeed come to rule and reign over his creation. And listen at how the psalmist depicts this king's reign. I will tell of a decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them. You shall rule over them. You shall, some of your translations say, shepherd them. How? with a rod of iron and, a da- and dash him in pieces like a potter's vessel. John is reminding us that Jesus is this prof- prophetic fulfillment of this Davidic king who would come and would sovereignly rule and reign over the nations once and for all. How will he do it? He will do it like a shepherd. Oftentimes we see or think of this image as a shepherd as this just very meek and kind and gracious little person. But the shepherd has a staff, a rod of iron for a variety of different reasons. And this depiction is a depiction of this shepherd's kingly, powerful rule. And what John is saying to us, Jesus is that shepherd who will rule and reign over the nations. But what happens after, according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, what happens after the birth of this Messiah? Notice the very next image that we're given here in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, is not to Christ's crucifixion. It's not to his burial. It's not to his resurrection. It is directly to his ascension. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Her child will be caught up to God and to his throne. John images for us Jesus' kingly rule by showing us that Jesus' rightful place is upon the throne of God itself. Why? Because the incarnation shows us Jesus is God. Why? His ascension and his exaltation shows us that Jesus is God and his rightful place to rule over all the nations is upon the throne of God. And friends, that is where Jesus at this very moment is seated in history. At this very moment, that is where Jesus is directing the course of your life and my life. 
That is where Jesus is at this very moment, even in the midst of all of this chaotic confusion we see in our culture and in our world. And my friends, that will be the place from which Jesus rules and reigns until he comes again. And notice what John is doing for us here. He's not only depicting for us this first advent of Christ. John closes here in verse 6 with an intended focus on that second advent of Christ. This second coming of Christ. And the woman fled into the wilderness. Jesus is born. By the way, I think this woman moves in her imagery here in Revelation chapter 12, clearly a depiction of, of Israel at the beginning. And as she moves throughout the narrative of Revelation chapter 12, ultimately culminating for us, or maybe what we could even say at the beginning of Revelation chapter 12, she is the people of God in the Old Testament, the people of God are, uh, is the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, the people of God is the church. And so by the time we get toward the end of Revelation chapter 12, the woman is indeed a clear reference to the people of God, that is to you and me, the, the people who by faith have trusted in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this woman flees into the wilderness. Now when we think of wilderness, we oftentimes think of intense difficulty, do we not? Like, I don't want to go into the wilderness. Somebody says, I've been on a wilderness wandering. It's kind of this depiction. I've, I've been on this journey, if you will, kind of away from God. But friends, do you know that in a number of these depictions of wilderness wanderings, if you will, in the Old Testament, these were not bad expressions. It was in the wilderness that the nation of Israel actually experienced God. It was in the wilderness where God provided for them manna from heaven above, for example. It was in the wilderness that God brought them out of Exodus, out of, out of Egypt, that is, out of Egypt, along the wilderness way in which they would ultimately go through the Red Sea. God brought them through the wilderness to ultimately provide them salvation. So oftentimes, in the Old Testament, this imagery of wilderness is this place of solace, this place of protection from God. So I think here in Revelation chapter 12, verse 6, Paul is, excuse me, John is depicting for us this period of time in which Jesus has ascended and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning and this period of time in which we, the church, wait with great anticipation for Christ's return. And what does this image, or what does this period between Christ's ascension and Christ's second coming look like for the church? At times it looks like that wilderness where we're left barren. At times it looks like that wilderness where we are indeed persecuted and we feel alone. But friends, this is also a great time in which we know God is indeed with us. For we hear the promise of that incarnation story from Matthew chapter 1. You shall call his name Emmanuel, for he is God with us. And then we hear that glorious close to the book of Matthew in Matthew chapter 28 and this promise of Jesus' kingly rule. For he is a God who will be with his people until the ends of the ages. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Jesus, my friends, is a God who is truly with us in our wilderness journeys in which we feel separated, in our wilderness journeys in which he is indeed providing and I think this, indication, this text indicates for us ultimately that this wilderness period is a period of intense provision by God, even provision by God in the midst of troubles. Notice this last phrase here in John chapter, excuse me, Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. This woman has fled into the wilderness where she has a place. Notice this next word. Prepared 
by God. This word in the Greek New Testament is placed in the perfect passive. That means a couple of things. Number one, it's in the passive voice. The woman has not to do anything with what has taken place here. It's something that God himself completely, totally, in and of himself has done. And friends, that's a depiction of salvation for you and me. Salvation is not a story of anything that you have done or anything that I have done. It is a story of what Christ, of what God through Christ by the power of his spirit has accomplished. This is a wilderness that God and God himself has prepared. In other words, friend, you can take great hope this morning in knowing that exactly where you and I are today is a place that God himself has prepared. But it also, by placing it in the perfect, reminds us that this is a place that God prepared in ages past, long, long, long ago. But it's not just something that God prepared long, long, long ago and forgot about. No, friends. It's something that God prepared long, 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 long ago. But at this very moment, at this very second, at this very time, at this very moment, has real implications for your life and for my life. Jesus is that shepherd king who is ruling and reigning. And what Jesus is doing at this very moment is exactly what God himself has ordained and prepared from ages ago for my edification and for your edification at this very moment. And friends, that is the narrative of the incarnation of Christ. Christ through his incarnation, is ruling and reigning over humanity. But then John closes, verse 6. And I've got another brand new, beautiful $100 bill for anyone this morning who with great certainty and clarity can exactly define for us these 1,260 days. I'm waiting And to what does the three and a half years refer? Aha. Some of you said tribulation. Well, let's see if you're right. Go with me back to chapter 11. Chapter 11. And look with me in verse 2. Chapter 11, verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Anybody care to guess how many days 42 months is? You're very smart, 1,260 days. Anybody care to guess how many years 42 months is or 1,260 days is? Man, you guys are above average. Go with me to chapter 13 now. Chapter 13. Look in verse 5. Chapter 13, verse 5. And the beast. While we're at it, maybe I'll add in another crisp, brand new, $100 bill for someone who would like to tell me exactly who the beast is. The beast is for sure completely, totally distinct from the dragon, and perhaps we might understand the beast to be the Antichrist. But we won't spend time this morning trying to figure that out. Chapter 13, verse 5, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for how long? Forty two months. So we have these two distinct images in Revelation 11, 12, and 13 
that culminate with this same period of time, whether you want to say that as time and times half or 1,260 days or 42 months, however you want to depict it. But I think it is safe to assume, without much digging, that we can tell that there is a difference between these 42 months that are listed in chapter 11, verse 2, and chapter 13, verse 5, versus these 1,260 days that are mentioned in chapter 12, verse 16. Excuse me, chapter 12, verse 6. Although all of these are equal in terms of days. So what in the world is John doing with these two images? I'll let you determine or figure out for us if John's intended purpose is to be a literal execution of exact 42 months, 1,260 days, or three and a half years. And this morning, I'd make an argument to you that I think what John is doing is using these images to ultimately communicate to us an eternal truth that he wishes to close with here in Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. Whatever these 1,260 days are, we can be certain of this one thing. These 1,260 days, the time starts ticking when? From the text of Scripture, when does the time start ticking for these 1,260 days? I would, like to, I would like to argue for you this morning that the time starts ticking at the ascension of Christ. Go back to verse 5. She gave birth to Melchild, one who is to rule all the nations, but her child was called up to God and, the narrative content, continues, and the woman was fled into the wilderness where she was Place be, prepare, were a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. I think what John is depicting for us is this period of time in, in between Christ's ascension and Christ's return is defined as these 1,260 days which are juxtaposed to, what are set in contradiction to these other 1,260 days that are defined as this period of time in which evilness will prevail. And what John is ultimately reminding us of here in this text, what John is ultimately given to us in this text is a reminder of God's deliverance and God's faithfulness. And as we reflect on God's deliverance and on God's, reflect, on God's faithfulness, we are reminded in our current 1,260 days that God too will deliver us, that God too is faithful to us. And friends, that is the narrative of the incarnation. That is what the incarnation shows us this morning. God is faithful to his people. Have you experienced God's faithfulness? Have you trusted in this child that has been born to this woman? In whose kingdom are you living today? Are you living in Christ's kingdom where you can know for sure with certainty this morning, regardless of what's taking place around you, that God has prepared for you at this very moment a place? That God has his church today, friends, exactly where he wants it, that God today is, is leading and ruling and reigning over his church. Do you desire today to live under God's kingdom rule? This is what Christmas is about. For the angel said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he himself and he alone will save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that you've given to us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in Jesus, you have indeed provided a rich, full salvation for us. And we ask, Lord, as we reflect on this incarnation, that you would stir in our hearts a deep passion for living under Christ's rule and reign. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning?
and reflect on the preaching of God's word? Have you trusted in God's Messiah today, friend? Perhaps you're here today and you've heard this narrative of Jesus' incarnation for many years. But you know in your own life you have lived your life in separation from God, not in submission to God. Friend, the Bible says that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And perhaps you're here today and the Spirit of God has convicted you of your need to turn from yourself and to turn toward Christ. Would you see this Jesus ruling and reigning over his humanity today and submit your life to him? For those of us who are believers, as we reflect on this incarnation story, as you think about Christ's earthly reign, as you think about his reign now, how are you living under Christ's reign at this moment? Do you joyfully submit to it? Do you long for his return? Do you, with the same anticipation that Israel had of the first coming of the Messiah, anticipate the Messiah's second coming? Would you ask God this morning, as you reflect on this text of Scripture, to increase in your heart a desire to live rightly as a citizen of the kingdom of God. In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word. If you're here this morning and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. We'll be glad as we sing for you to come forward and, and we'd be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. Or friend, you don't have to walk down and talk to one of us. There are plenty of people seated around you in this auditorium this morning that would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Please feel free to turn to someone seated next to you. They'll be delighted to share with you. Secondly, maybe one of us could pray with you that indeed your affection for Christ might increase, that your desire to live in Christ's kingdom might increase. We would delight in shepherding your hearts by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God has placed it upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you, may our responses be pleasing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you